For your Bibles, why don't we turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3 together. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through Philippians and finished the second chapter last week. If you do need a Bible, there's copies the gentlemen have in the aisle. They'd be happy to give you a copy to follow along as we study God's Word this morning. Finish chapter 2. We'll begin this morning in chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to go down as far as the ninth verse together. So if you're turned to Philippians 3, would you stand together with me out of honor of God's word as you read our passage of scripture for this morning's study. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And Father, we ask for the assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning as we open up the word of God. Lord, we acknowledge and realize that this is just as much a part of worship as the songs we've sang and the prayers and other things we've done. Lord, we want to continue now to worship in spirit and in truth, trusting that, Lord, it's through the truth of your word that, Lord, we're set free to know you and to worship you in a greater way. So we ask now, would you prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled in this place. Lord, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but we want to experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking personally to our hearts. So bless your word, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I want you to think for a moment as we begin this morning, what really is the most important thing in life? Uh, or better, I guess, to ask more direct and personal, what is the most important thing to you? As I think through that myself, I honestly can't think of anything more important for any person than to simply be right with God. If you were to boil down that question, that really should be something that every soul answers, what is the most important thing in life, or what is the most important thing to you, I would hope that you would come to the conclusion that the most important thing is for a person more than that, for yourself, the most important thing is to be right with God. But then that must be followed with the question, what really does that mean? Or what does it involve to be right with God? And uh, by that, I guess, how does a person, you might first say, how does a person get right with God? And then more than that, how does a person stay right? Or how does a person remain right with God? And by this, I mean to get right with God, first of all, in a judicial sense. In the sense that God's created us. God is the judge of all the earth because he's the creator of everything and every human breathing soul upon the earth. So in a judicial sense, how does a person get right with God initially so that in a positional sense before their creator and their judge and their maker they might be right with God regarding their eternal destiny and then secondarily after you get right with God positionally judicially 
Secondarily, how does a person remain right with God in a relational sense? And by that, I mean in an ongoing experiential way. How, how do I remain in right relationship with God once I come into relationship with God? Well, I think the passage that we're looking at together this morning, it addresses some of those things. So if you desire to know how do I get right with God or you hunger to know how do I stay and remain in right fellowship and relationship with God? Well, this passage, I think, speaks to those type of things. Look with me again back in verse 1 as we pick up where Paul begins here in the third chapter. He starts by saying, finally, my brethren. Now, what he's going to do is to begin to speak about Again, finally, there doesn't indicate the idea of the conclusion of his letter, but it indicates more when you look at the language, a change of subject, that he has something that he wants to begin to discuss. And I think as you begin chapter three, if you've read through maybe the whole chapter, familiar with it, it's almost good at this point, if you, you bear with me for a moment, to, to almost stop and delay a quick backdrop in regards to what Paul is really in context addressing in this next section as we begin to go through it together to kind of lay that as a backdrop what he's seeking to do you'll notice is he's really seeking to refute wrong doctrine and what he's seeking to do in this next section here is to address the danger of spiritual ideas that were being propagated by false teachers uh, the Bible makes it very clear uh, that uh, we can see in Scripture that false teachers not only existed in that day in the early church, and they exist in the present day modern church as well, but false teachers in the days of Paul the Apostle, they didn't just exist. They literally, we can tell from the Bible, they actually followed Paul the Apostle around as he went preaching the gospel of grace and planting churches. And their intention was to undermine the message of the gospel of the grace of God and to draw people in different directions after themselves instead. One particular group that was predominant in that day spreading wrong doctrine was a group of false teachers referred to as Judaizers. And that's specifically who Paul's trying to address here. These false teachers referred to as Judaizers. And the reason they got the name, the idea, was that they were trying to Judaize people. You know, somebody might say, you know, call somebody you know, guilty of trying to proselytize. They were trying to Judaize, the idea being from Judaism. They were trying to Judaize people. And we need to remember, as we study the Word of God, we need to remember that the gospel first went to the Jews by God's design. They were God's chosen people. In fact, the early church, when you study the scripture, you see was predominantly all Jewish. The first Christians were all Jews who recognized Jesus as their Messiah. The problem that happened is as God planned, the gospel eventually then did go to Gentiles. And Gentile is just a term that refers to anyone by nationality who's not Jewish. So anyone who's not Jewish by birth, uh, and, and ethnicity is referred to as a Gentile. But because the gospel went first to the Jews and then secondarily to the Gentiles, and because the gospel message of salvation, because Jesus Christ himself, because Christianity sprang from the roots of Judaism, the problem that came along with that was some wrongly perceived and wrongly pers uh, uh, kind of presumed upon the fact that what was necessary then, because Christianity sprang from Judaism, was that people then had to come through the doorway of Judaism to then accept Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God. The idea was that a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, had to come through the doorway of Judaism first before they then could accept Jesus Christ and God's salvation. So the Judaizers were basically a sect of Jews who were telling all the Gentile people that were non-Jews that what they needed to do to be saved or become a Christian was to first, listen, first become Jewish, ascribe to the laws, the ordinances, the ceremonies of Judaism, and then they could then secondarily come to Christ. It was not enough to just come to Jesus directly. What they were telling people was what they needed to do was to adhere to the observance of the Old Testament laws of Judaism, to obey Sabbath, 
to keep the feasts, to honor the Jewish dietary codes, and more than that, to even embrace the rite of circumcision that God gave to the Jews to identify themselves as God's chosen people who lived after him. And the idea was, once you do that as a prerequisite, once you begin to adhere to the uh, observances of Judaism, keep Sabbath, honor the circumcision rite as well as a ceremony and an ordinance, keep the Old Testament. Once you do those things and become Jewish, it's then through the prerequisite of Judaism that you can then come to Christ. And what they were teaching people was that faith in Christ was not enough. The idea behind what they were communicating, unfortunately, was yes, you have to have faith in Christ, but you also must observe some things in relation to Judaism before you can truly and sincerely come to Christ, that there were rituals and things to observe in attachment with faith in Christ. And let me just say, Judaizers are still alive today. They might be today what we call in modern terminology legalists. People who basically teach or direct people wrongly that becoming and remaining right with God to have forgiveness of sins or be in right relationship with God is somehow sort of a combination of religious observances and faith in Christ at the same time. And they almost indicate by what they teach and tell people that you have to do these things or don't do these things plus believe and have faith in Jesus Christ and then you'll be right with God. Or some may indicate as well, tragically, that if you come through the doorway of this particular religious system, that only if you come through the doorway of this particular religious system and believe in Christ, then you can be right with God or then you can experience salvation. And see, false teachers in any form, but especially in that form, are detrimental and dangerous to people. You'll notice Paul the Apostle's language in chapter 3 referring to false teachers. He calls them evil workers. Later in the chapter, he will call them enemies of the cross of Christ. He uses strong language because he understands the tremendous danger. And here he's seeking to refute these Judaizers in their perversion of the gospel of grace and the detriment it was going to cause to the souls of these believers there in Philippi. So he wants to instruct and warn these believers, be careful. Don't get drawn into this and do not buy into this theology that there is something more that's necessary than just faith in Christ or that somehow through your performance or religious observances you can make yourself right with God relationally because the Bible teaches the complete opposite of that. So Paul says, finally, my brethren, then he starts by just saying rejoice in the Lord. So he kind of almost as if he pauses before he goes into this subject that he has ahead to quickly encourage the believers he's writing to of the benefit of just celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He uses the word there rejoice, which just is a term that means celebrate or be pleased about or or find pleasure and, and enjoyment in. And he says rejoice, that is celebrate in the Lord. Find pleasure, find satisfaction, fulfillment, find a reason to be happy, he says, in the Lord. That is in who the Lord is, in what the Lord's done, and what the Lord will do. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can speak for myself. As we journey through this life, and we face situations, and we're confronted with circumstances, sometimes I find the only thing that I can, and maybe you as well, can truly at times rejoice in is the Lord sometimes. But quite honestly, you know what? Sometimes that's just enough to keep us sane and stable enough to keep the train on the tracks and just keep putting one foot in front of another as we journey through this life. Sometimes that's just enough. Hey, you know what? I, I can still rejoice in the Lord, who he is, what he means to me and what he's done for me and what he will do for me. And Paul will talk more about rejoicing in the Lord. We'll see as we get into chapter four. He goes on in verse one saying, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. The idea is, bothersome or burdensome but he says it's actually for you very safe again Paul's heart and we saw this last week in the end of chapter 2 
Paul's got a shepherd's heart. He's a genuine minister of the gospel. We saw in chapter 2 last week three examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, men who the Bible sets forth as good examples of what it really means to be a sincere minister of the Lord. And Paul has a shepherd's heart. And notice because of that, he's willing to do whatever it takes to keep the sheep healthy and to keep the sheep as well protected from harmful things. And he's about, he says in verse one here, to repeat some things that he had shared with them before. He says in verse one here, I'm about to write to you the same thing. So in written form, Paul's now going to write out some truths, some spiritual doctrine and ideas to these believers. He says, look, I realize ahead of time, he says, I know I've already talked to you about these things. I've taught you these things before. I've told you these things before. I've already covered them. Yet Paul saw the repetition of truth that they already knew as valuable to help them stay right with God and to remain on target in their spiritual lives. He says, look, I don't consider it bothersome. I don't consider it burdensome to have to be repetitious and to reinforce to you the same truths, the same spiritual ideas that are sound and accurate. He says, instead, for you, it's safe. It's actually a safeguard for your soul. He says, it's something that will protect you from being misguided spiritually. It's something that will keep you from all the erroneous ideas that are out there always trying to invade your mind about what is right and wrong spiritually. And it will make sure, he says, that you are not misled and misguided spiritually. See, periodically, the reinforcing of known truth, things we already know. Oh, tell me something new. Tell me something new. Well, I like to hear something new once in a while, but I find so often that what I need in my life is remind me what's true. <laughs> remind me what's right. Help me to remember what is right because the world's always telling me what's wrong. <laughs> And my mind is always thinking things that are wrong. And you know, the Bible shows us that the reinforcing of known truth can spare us from believing what's wrong and from behaving what's wrong, which ultimately can be very dangerous. See, being reminded of the same things I already know are spiritually true, the Bible shows us here, it actually helps us stay right with God. You know, it's been statistically proven in even secular studies, that the way that we learn best is by repetition. I found a statistic one time before that said people will remember 25% of what you tell them two times. Well, that's pretty discouraging, especially if you're someone who's a communicator. People will remember 25% of what you tell them twice. So even what you repeat twice they'll still only remember 25% of that. See, that's why the Bible says there is value in repetition. You know, again, whether it's in sports, if you're a coach, you know, you realize in sports or in athletics, reinforcing basics, fundamentals, you know, reinforcing things is vital to the effectiveness and the success of an athlete or a sports team. Well, whether it's in sports or spiritual life, the same is true. Reinforcing what's right, repetition of what we already know is helpful. It helps us stay on track. It guards us. It protects us. Again, as we're bombarded by erroneous ideas and teachers who are proclaiming and teaching things on Christian television and magazines and writing books that, that appeal to this craving in us. Oh, I wonder what this new thing is. I need some spice in my Christian life. And, and people go chasing off after all. And, and it's the same sound repetition of what's right and accurate that protects us from those kind of things, the repetition of the same truths that we already know. And again, it protects us as we're susceptible to struggle with wrong thoughts and wrong feelings that we all are prone to in our lives. Jesus, remember, said, if you know the truth, that's what will set you free. It sets us free from wrong ideas, from traps and snares being set for us. Listen to how Peter says the same thing. He writes Second Peter 1, he says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, he says, to stir you up by reminding you. Now, sometimes the best thing for us is just to hear the same thing we already know that's true about God. 
Sometimes the best thing for us to do in maybe helping another person is not to feel like we have to tell them some new novel thing, but just to tell them what they already know to remind them to reinforce the truth that God has already established in their life. It's a safeguard. It's a protection, Paul says. So I'm about to be repetitious, but he says, for your sake, it actually keeps you safe. Peter says, it will guard you and stir you up in a walk that is straight before the Lord. So knowing the same thing, hearing it again, helps us stay right with God. Look what he says, verse 2. He says, then beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware, he says, of the mutilation, exclamation point. So Paul's making some strong statements here. He's exhorting these Christians now of the importance of being able, notice, to recognize false teaching. Not to ignore it, but to be able to recognize it to perceive it, to see it for what it is. Why? So that you can avoid it. You know, you need to see a sign if it says bridge out. You need to pay attention. Because if you just keep going when it says you're going to end up getting hurt or harmed, something disastrous is going to happen. And yes, it's not always, well, that's so judgmental. No, it's called good judgment. It's called good, good judgment. You know, to protect our children, we teach them things that are dangerous and detrimental. We label things that are poisonous. Look, if you ingest this, it will harm you. And in the same way, spiritually, there is a tremendous value to, in balance, recognize error and what is wrong. And here, Paul very strongly says, look, I don't want you to be persuaded by these Judaizers, these wrong teachers. Notice in verse 2 here, he uses the word beware three times. Beware, beware, beware. You get the idea that he's saying, look, are you aware? Please be aware. Be careful, the idea is. Be cautious and careful about, again, these false teachers that were the Judaizers. And notice Paul uses three terms, descriptive terms, to describe them. Uh, he says, first of all, he calls them dogs. Paul, that's not very nice. It's probably not, but it was honest. Paul says, beware. Interesting, he calls them dogs because... Many of the Orthodox Jews who looked condescendingly upon Gentiles many times called them dogs. So it's very interesting that these Judaizers, Paul says, beware of the dogs. Beware of them. Now, when he uses the term dogs there, understand, he's not talking about, don't picture in your mind your puffy, pretty little domesticated house pet that's very precious to you and very important. He's talking about scavenger dogs, undomesticated dogs that would roam the streets there in the ancient culture. Dogs that, again, undomesticated and basically they went around and they were a nuisance. They barked, they were loud, they were annoying and they were just like little scavengers going around trying to satisfy their drives. And Paul says, this is what the character of these false teachers are like their character is like a dog their nature they're like dogs in character they followed paul around barking their loud doctrines and, and trying to draw attention to themselves and they were basically just spiritual scavengers who were just looking unfortunately to kind of feed and prey upon people and listen can i just say in application in spiritual life we need to realize hear me there are people out there that are dogs. They're dogs. They may be dressed in spiritual garb, but if you unrobe it underneath in their heart, they are dogs. And, and we need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize the existence of that reality. Paul uses secondarily the next term regarding to false teachers, these Judaizers. He calls them evil workers. In other words, their spiritual work, though it was religious work, he says it's actually evil work though they have a spiritual appearance they were misleading people with wrong spiritual ideas they were misguiding people even worse in regards to eternal matters and again by way of application in spiritual matters there are some hear me some religious workers who are not only not doing good by the work that they are doing they're actually doing evil they're actually harming and bringing evil into the lives of people if they are misguiding them in regards to what is accurate and true spiritually in regards to their soul. That's not good work. They may be doing good works socially, 
but they're doing evil works spiritually if they're misguiding a proper understanding of what God intends for the soul of the human being in regards to being in relationship with him. Thirdly, Paul gives them the term, he says, beware of the mutilation. And this is where you almost begin to see Paul's sarcasm. That's sort of a sarcastic play on words for the circumcision process. Paul says these, again, and, and interesting, circumcision, remember, was the physical observance God gave to the Jews to mark themselves regarding an internal relationship that they had with God. Again, it was a mark that God said, you know, to, for them to put upon their body, but it wasn't the physical right. It was just a, a way of identifying themselves as who they were as a people, being circumcised in heart or set apart unto God. And interestingly enough, these Judaizers, they really emphasize the need of being circumcised. More than that, they actually, when you study the New Testament, you see they prided themselves on being called the circumcision. This is what they call, we're the circumcision. Paul says, no, you're the mutilation. That's a circumcision, that's mutilation. What you're doing, he says, it's really not helpful. By telling people, look, this right, this religious system, this ritual, you must follow it. It is essential. I'm putting all this emphasis on the ritual, the ritual, the right, the ritual, the ordinance. Paul says, you're not actually helping people. You're actually harming people. You're actually hindering people. See, the truth of the matter is, sometimes, more often than not, religious rite and religious rituals and ritualism actually blinds people from being able to see spiritual reality in regards to their own person and how that pertains to relationship with God because they're blinded as they're caught up in all the ritualism. And to this day still, even as in that day, with religious rituals and religious rites, many times they're not helping but hindering people because often through religious ritual, people are blinded to the spiritual reality of the condition of their own soul. They may be but have routinely, perfectly follow all the rituals, but they get, unfortunately, in the rituals, they miss Jesus. And they miss the reality of what God really intends for their life. And in so doing, they ultimately, rituals and religious rites and ceremonies and observances, these things can actually be more harmful and detrimental to people's soul because they blind people from seeing spiritual realities that God wants them to see. So again, so important, not recognizing wrong and dangerous things, the Bible shows, can really keep a person from becoming right with God. Because if you don't recognize what's wrong spiritually, it can ultimately keep you from seeing what's right spiritually and entering into a right relationship with God. Paul goes on, verse 3, saying, For we, the idea is in contrast to those who called themselves the circumcision. Paul says, We are the circumcision. The idea there is almost, again, he's going to emphasize realizing spiritual life also, not just what's wrong, but we also need to recognize what does it mean to be in right relationship with the Lord? What does it mean to be right with God? And using the term circumcision that they did, he kind of takes it now and he says, listen, the truth of the matter is, he says with spiritual confidence, if you want to talk about circumcision for what it means to be set apart and to be right with God, and again, when you circumcised, you know, a, a, a young... The idea is sensitivity, cutting away the flesh, and there's a new sensitivity. And circumcision was something to always be of the heart, that the calloused heart, the flesh is cut away, and now I'm alive and I'm sensitive to God. Paul says, truth of the matter is, if anybody's alive to God, those of us who are in right relationship with God are, not people who are just doing religious observances. Interesting, Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 11, in Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The idea is, again, a spiritual circumcision of the heart to be right in relationship with God, to be awakened and sensitive to God. And then in verse 3 here, he further expands and describes what it means for those who live in right relationship with God. He says, first of all, he says those who, verse 3, he says, worship God in the Spirit. Notice, he's talking about what, what does it mean to worship God? What's proper worship? Well, he says, proper worship, the proper way to worship God is not through meaningless spiritual observances, nor is it through, you know, uh, doing things that are just ritualistic observances or mechanical duties. 
or going through rites or ceremonies that we just do through routine motion, but really there's no personal meaning in our heart behind it at all. Remember God on one occasion, uh, and then Jesus reemphasized it, reiterated the same thing. God said, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And see, we can go through routine motions of ritualistic observances. We can adhere. Maybe you were exposed to that and and even at times participated in just routine motions. Your heart didn't even have to be connected. Your head didn't even have to be connected. It was so rote and routine that you just went through the motions and the observances. And, And Paul's saying here, the Bible says, no, listen, those who worship God, they don't worship God with those things. They worship God in the Spirit. The idea is their heart, the human spirit connecting with God who is spirit, the inward man having a meaningful experience with God who is spirit, having a connection with God whereby the worship is driven, listen, from the heart, where the spirit of man is awakened and alive and in fellowship and experiencing God himself who is spirit, connecting with God himself on a personal level in a relational and an intimate way. Interesting, in John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking to a Samaritan woman, she was confronting him and in a sense challenging him over what was the right religious system. You say that we should worship, you know, your father say we should worship over here in Jerusalem. We say Mount Gerizim. So what's, what's the right way? What's the right system or what's the right place? And Jesus just disregarded all of that and said to this woman instead, he said, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, which show me that there is a true way to worship and there's a false way to worship. There's a right way to worship and a wrong way to worship. And I didn't say that, Jesus said that. But he says, true worshipers, listen, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God's looking for people to worship him, it says. And then he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So to worship as God intends, Jesus says, we must worship in spirit, and the idea being there, again, our human spirit entering into connection with God who is spirit. Our human spirit being awakened to a relationship with God where we are connecting with God in the realm of the spirit to worship in spirit in conjunction with the spirit of God. And also he says we must worship in truth which means in accordance with the truth of how God reveals himself. No, I worship. Well, lots of people worship but Jesus said but to worship God in a way that's acceptable is to worship God in accordance with truth. How has God revealed himself? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So to worship God in consistency with the truth and in the realm and fellowship of the Spirit is the way to worship. Paul says also, those who are right with the Lord, he says, we also rejoice, verse 3, he says, in Christ Jesus. The idea there again is, Paul's emphasizing by comparison, not celebrating some ceremony, not, again, upholding some religious system and its observances. Paul says, no, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We celebrate, we rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's trying to indicate the idea of Jesus is the focal point of our worship. It's about a person, not a system. It's about the Son of God, not some system of religious rituals that we get caught up in. Paul says, no, the focal point of our worship is Jesus himself. He's the center of why we worship. Again, I encourage you, read Revelation 4, read Revelation 5, where there the Bible gives us pictures of the scene around the throne of God where true, genuine worship is taking place in God's presence around God's throne. And take notice of what the worship is like there. It's focused on Jesus. The focal point is all about adoring and reverencing the Lord. Revelation 4 says the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and are created. And you see the same repetition in Revelation chapter 5. 
worship, he says. It's about rejoicing in the person of Christ Jesus. And Paul says as well, and putting no confidence, he says, verse 3, in the flesh. Again, the idea, no reliance on human efforts. There's no confidence as we're approaching God in our own achievements, as if somehow we bring something and because we observe this or we do this particular you know, ritualistic thing, that as we do that somehow, uh, my human achievements therefore earns the favor and satisfaction in the presence of God. Paul says, no way. No confidence in the flesh whatsoever. Paul would say later on, I know that in me that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. You know, to the cross, to the cross I cling. That song says, you know, nothing do I bring. I bring nothing to God. Nothing but a heart that says, God, thank you that as a wretched sinner, that your son Jesus Christ is a wonderful Savior and I can rejoice in him and celebrate him. Again, the focus in God's type of worship, rejoicing in Christ, putting no confidence in the human fleshly achievements. Paul, in relation to that, says, for, for, though I might have confidence in the flesh and if anyone else he says thinks he may have confidence in the flesh i more so now what paul's going to do here is this in relation to this temptation of the judaizers who put much confidence in their flesh in other words their own spiritual achievements so they felt in a sense self-righteous because they did lots of spiritual and religious things the tragedy was, as they did those things and they inflicted upon others, you must also do these things, they felt very self-righteous in their fleshly human achievements of religious and spiritual activity. Well, what Paul's going to do now in relation to not putting confidence in their flesh, he's going to say, look, if anybody had a right or reason to celebrate their spiritual achievements or spiritual pedigree, by all means, Paul saying, I was your God. I, that's what he says, verse 4. He says, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that they should have confidence in the flesh, Paul said, above all people, I, if God would accept what was done in religious activity, he says, man, I was your guy because I was there. And look what he goes on to say, verse 5 and 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, he says, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Again, Paul's acknowledging that at one point in his life, here's what he's acknowledging in these verses, that he himself admits he was blinded by his own self-righteous pride and the sense that he was right with God because he strictly followed the religious routines and the spiritual pedigree that he was brought up in and that he had tremendous sense of confidence in himself because of that. He lays out here in verse 5 and 6 trying to refute the idea of this self-righteous doctrine of the Judaizers saying, look, if anybody should have been able to be acceptable to God. I would have surpassed all of you if that's what it really took. If God accepted religious pedigree and spiritual performance, Paul says, man, I would have bypassed everybody. And then he lays out a list, which is rather impressive, in verse 5 and 6 of his pedigree and performance. Regarding his pedigree, he says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, what Paul's trying to indicate is from birth, I was raised, I was reared, in strict adherence to the Old Testament law. Paul didn't circumcise himself. His parents circumcised him on the eighth day. So he says, look, from birth, I was birthed into my spiritual pedigree. He says more than that. He says, I was of the stock of Israel. I was, again, born into Judaism. I was born into the things that gave me my spiritual pedigree. He says, I was strictly raised in the spiritual pedigree that I was raised in. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, Benjamin gave Israel their first king. Benjamin, remember, was the one tribe in the south that stood faithful to Judah when all the northern tribes went into idolatry for a season of time in Israel's history. And I love Paul says as well in these verses, he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In a sense, you have to hear what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, among those who would label themselves a Hebrew, Paul says, I was an authentic, bona fide Hebrew. He says, I was the classic Hebrew poster child. 
He's trying to tell, look, you couldn't get more Hebrew than I was. You know, people may say today something about, you know, if I'm Lutheran, you couldn't get any more Lutheran than I was. Or you, it, among Catholics, you couldn't get any more Catholic than I was. Or among Methodists, or, you couldn't get any more Baptist than I was. Do you understand? This is the idea of what Paul's trying to say here. I was the Hebrew poster child. You want to talk about religious pedigree? I was the poster child for religious pedigree in regards to what they were talking about. And then Paul says, if my pedigree wasn't enough... My performance and commitment was all the more. He says in verse 6 there, concerning keeping the law, I became a Pharisee. That was the strictest sect of those who followed keeping the law. He says concerning zeal, he says, you want to talk about dedication? Oh man, you want to talk about passion, commitment, being devout? He says, remember I was the guy who was persecuting the church, these Jesus people what do they think? He's born again. What? He says, I, I, I had so much zeal, I surpassed everybody. And he says, if that were not enough concerning righteousness that comes by keeping the law's standards, he says, I was blameless. I, Paul says, and you look at his life, you study it, his observance to the strict adherence of the Old Testament laws, he kept it down to the minutia. I never deviated. I kept it strictly, perfectly. I mean, you look at a guy like you think, man, if anybody's right with God, that guy's pedigree, that guy's performance. But notice Paul says, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have now counted loss for Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is what I once considered spiritual advantages in my life, all my religious pedigree, my strict spiritual performance, all those things that I once counted a spiritual advantage, later on, he says, I actually realized they were disadvantages when I finally encountered Christ. Look what he's saying in that verse there. He says, what things were gained to me, that is what I considered advantageous. He says, I have now counted those things loss. Why? He says, the reason for Christ, for Christ. Paul came to this understanding that what he once considered helpful in his spiritual life, he realized was actually something he had to let go of. And Paul went through this experience. Again, Paul wasn't some, you know, hardcore, reprobate, immoral, you know, wicked, you know, hell's angel. I mean, this wasn't Paul. Paul was a religious man, deeply religious moral, upright. And Paul says, here's what I had to recognize. I had to be willing, that's what Paul's saying, to forsake my religious system and all the self-righteousness I felt and clung to in my arrogance of self He said, I had to release my religious system to finally experience a relationship with Jesus Christ by the grace of God through faith. He said, I had to come to the place where I realized in my life, I have to set aside that in order to be able to experience Christ in a personal way. Because Paul, like many devoutly religious people, had to come to the reality that God doesn't accept human achievement. God doesn't accept religious observances or, or spiritual works or good deeds, wonderful as they are, that a person's religious rule-keeping can't make them right with God. And ultimately, a person's religious rule-keeping is not really what God desires. God desires a relationship. And that relationship comes through His Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived the sinless life that we can't live. And who made a way for us to have forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. Notice verse 8 and 9 here. He elaborates on what he learned of the proper way to become right with God. He says, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss. He says, of all things. And I now count them as rubbish. The term literally means dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Here's what Paul's doing in verses 8 and 9. He's rejoicing in the excitement of having personally discovered for himself, having come to that transitional place in his own life where he found what it meant to become right with God. 
And that's what Paul's celebrating here, that he'd come to realize, hey, I finally realized I actually had to relinquish my religious system so that I might actually encounter a relationship with God in a living and personal way through his son, Jesus Christ. You see what he says in verse 8? He says, nothing can ever compare to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. One translation says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, the most excellent thing Paul learned, and we must realize the most excellent thing a person can ever experience is coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. That is the most excellent thing, the most valuable thing anybody can ever come to know is to know personally Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And the reason for that, very simply, is first of all, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is what changes our eternal destiny. John 17, Jesus said this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing Jesus personally that allows us to encounter and experience and receive eternal life. 1 John 5 says, This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, how do I get right with God, man? How do I experience eternal life? How do I know that I'm not going to be in eternal damnation, but know that I'm going to have eternal life God simplifies it for people like you and I. He says, it's real simple. If you know my son, Jesus Christ, in a personal, intimate way, he is the one that has eternal life in him because he is God. He is the And if you have Christ, then you possess eternal life. If you do not know Jesus Christ, God says you still do not possess eternal life because it's not achieved, it's not earned, it's not, it's not worked for you. No, it's received, and it's received through a relationship with the Son of God himself. And to know Jesus Christ as Lord is also important as well because that's what spiritual life has always been intended to be, to have a relationship with God, not to be a religious person. So many people in our world are tragically, whether naively ignorant or wrongly misguided or stubbornly refusing to realize, look, God does not want us to be religious to be rule keepers. Well, I do this and I don't do that. That's why I'm right with God. Or I don't watch this or I don't drink that or I don't, or I go here this many times a week or I read my Bible and God's saying, no, if any of that would work, why would a loving God send his only dear son to this earth to live sinlessly and then to be beaten and spit upon and pierced to a cross and his blood poured out all over the ground if you and I could jump through a few hoops no matter how many hoops it would take to get right with God. No, we can do nothing. And so God says, look, I don't want you to keep rules, but I do want a relationship with you. My son took care of keeping all the rules and then he suffered because you don't keep the rules. And now you and I can have a relationship. But you gotta come through my son, God says. And that's what I want for you. So I want a relationship with you. That my son would be involved in your life, that you would let my son be a part of your life that you let him take over that you'd accept him into your life to have genuine relationship unfortunately is so tragic that so many people miss the reality that what God genuinely wants is that we would just know Jesus to have a relationship a meaningful personal intimate relationship with Jesus Paul says here all those things I had before all the religious stuff he says in these verses you know what he says I count all that stuff now rubbish it's dung it, it just it's worthless why? He says in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul is saying here, look, whatever it takes, whatever a person has to lose, even if it's letting go of their pride of years of religiosity and tradition, he says it's all worth it if they gain Christ. If they gain Christ. Paul says here, look, what I lost is nothing in comparison, he says, verse 9, to what I have found in him. 
Listen, no matter what a person has to lose to find Jesus and what you find in Jesus is way worth it. Because what did Paul find in Jesus? Well, he describes in verse 9. He says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In other words, Paul realized that when he became in relationship with Christ, that's what made him be right truly with God. To be found in him is a positional term. It speaks of in the same way of of being in union and relationship with Christ like a husband and a wife. When two people get married, the two become one and the wife takes the name and the identity of her husband. Well, my wife entered into a relationship with me. She took my identity. She is now Mrs. Montemuro. She shares my identity because of the relationship we share. Well, the Bible says that when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we then share in identity with Jesus. We are now in him. The Bible speaks of being in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. And as a result of being in relationship with Christ, notice our self-righteousness is something that we don't offer to God to accept. Paul says here in verse 9, not having my own righteousness. I don't have my own righteousness. I don't say, here, God, here's my own righteousness. Because God says, that's not acceptable. Your own righteousness isn't acceptable. So Paul realized that his own righteousness wasn't acceptable or sufficient, but that we had to do what? we had to receive a righteousness which God himself supplies. He says, I found, he says, the righteousness which is, look, verse 9, from God by faith. See, God says, I want you to be acceptable in my presence, but you in your sinfulness, no matter how hard you try, can never be acceptable. But I can give you the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because when we come to Jesus, we're then in him positionally. And when God looks upon me as a wicked sinner, he doesn't see me in my sin. He sees me in his son. And he sees me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is something a person must receive to become right with God. It's what the Bible refers to of the doctrine of justification. Whereby God, listen, God declares a believing sinner righteous in his sight because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When a person accepts Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches what takes place is two things. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, God eliminates the debt of your sin because the blood of Jesus pays the penalty. So God pays the debt of our sin. But more than that, then God deposits into our spiritual bank account the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So that when God deals with us, he doesn't deal with us in our performance. He deals with us in the position of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. This is what Romans 3 and 4 and 5 greatly expand upon, that that is how we become right with God. He says we become right with God by faith. Hey, this morning, can I leave you with this question? Are you right with God? Judicially, positionally, have you become right with God in regards to your eternal destiny and the condition of your soul. And if you have, let me ask this. Are you living in right relationship with God as a Christian? And if not, as we sing our last worship song this morning, can I encourage you? Respond. God's saying, look, I'm just after your heart. Believe. Be responsive to me.